Um, our, our next session um, looks at the US-Australia bilateral economic relationship in a global context. Um, and I'll introduce the speakers in, in just a moment. Then session two, um, geoeconomics, uh, contestation and, and coercion. And then our third session our, and our last session, um, 11.30 through 12.15, uh, is, is very much back in, in a defence uh, security frame, transforming the alliance for collective defence challenges. So you can see the substantive lie of the land, um, um, bilateral economics, that geoeconomic space, and, and then um, defence um, more focused on in our, in our last session. Um, but to, to get underway with this first substantive session, um, um, the United States uh, bilateral economic relationship in a global context. Um, um, this session will be led by um, the director of our trade investment program at the United States Study Center, Dr. Uh, Stephen Kirchner, immediately uh, to my left. Uh, and he's joined by, um, over there, um, Brett Williams, um, uh, principal of Williams Trade Law. And, and, and of course, uh, Jonathan Koppel, we're delighted to have you with us from, uh, from one of the commissioners at the, at the Productivity uh, Commission. And, and I will retire and hand the session over to you, Stephen. Uh, over to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Simon, and welcome to this morning's session on the bilateral uh, US-Australia economic relationship uh, in a global context. We have a very good uh, panel to address that context uh, for you today. Uh, Jonathan Koppel from the PC is going to speak on uh, trade wars and the future of the rules-based uh, trading order. Uh, reflecting the work that he leads at the PC on the multilateral uh, trading system. And Dr. Brett Williams will speak on current WTO litigation affecting uh, relations between Australia, US uh, and China and propose WTO reforms uh, reflecting his expertise uh, both in WTO jurisprudence uh, and also in the, the trade defence architecture of the multilateral trading system. Uh, I'm going to set the stage by giving a, a brief outline of my contribution to the Alliance Agenda report that we are releasing today, and then I'll hand it contributions, and then we'll open it up to, to Q&A. The Australia-US economic relationship got through the last four years uh, in better shape than some other bilateral relationships that uh, we could point to. The risks to that relationship under President Trump mostly came from outside the relationship itself uh, and were attributable more to its broader context, uh, in particular US-China trade tensions and issues that the United States has with the governance of the multilateral trading system, uh, of which Australia, of course, has always been a strong supporter. Neither of those issues goes away with the transition to President Biden, but the policy approaches that the new administration brings to those issues are likely to be more constructive, uh, not least in terms of Australia's ability to work with the US uh, in addressing issues of common concern uh, in ways that enhance rather than inhibit uh, global trade. In my contribution, I note the renewed industry, uh, the new renewed interest in industry policy in both Australia and the United States, uh, which is focused on issues of manufacturing capability uh, and also the security of supply chains for strategic 
and critical goods. As a trusted ally and partner of the United States, there's considerable scope for joint approaches to these issues and approaches that serve to expand trade on a bilateral basis uh, and that reduce the costs of those initiatives. However, this will require the development of new coordination mechanisms, which for the most part do not exist or exist only on a very limited and ad hoc basis. Uh, development of those mechanisms, I would submit, needs to be on the OSMIN agenda. There are also risks that this agenda loses its strategic focus and becomes a vehicle for more parochial or protectionist considerations. The Democratic Congress in the US in particular will be looking to harness this agenda uh, for domestic employment and other objectives. And Australian politicians are not above uh, adopting policies that effectively discriminate against foreign commercial interests. The development of coordination mechanisms between the US and its allies on these issues is one way of ensuring that joint strategic interests and legitimate national security concerns prevail over those more parochial considerations. But they'll need to be instituted at a fairly high level to ensure that they effectively discipline domestic policy-making processes and steer policy in trade-enhancing rather than trade-inhibiting directions. It's encouraging to note that despite or possibly because of the last four years, support for foreign trade in the United States, as measured by opinion polls, is actually higher than ever. Uh, and approaching the very high levels of support that we traditionally find in Australia. So running at about 74% in the US uh, compared to 88% in Australia. My contribution also touches on the taxation and regulation of digital platforms and digital commerce, which threatens to become an increasingly touchy issue in the bilateral, in part because the Australian government and regulators have sought to set international precedents in this area in ways that raise the stakes both for US firms and for the US government. Given US dominance in this domain, it is difficult to put in place unilateral approaches that do not discriminate directly against the commercial interests of US firms. And it's no surprise that those firms and the USTR will push back uh, against those approaches. For me, this highlights the need for more rules-based approaches that are located within digital trade and taxation agreements, either on a bilateral, plurilateral, or multilateral basis. The focus of those rules-based approaches should be on maximizing tax and investment certainty, which will complement our investment facilitation efforts, which are largely targeted at the US, uh, which will in turn reinforce the bilateral investment relationship with our most important foreign investor, which is of course the United States. So with that, I'll hand over firstly to Jonathan Koppel. Thank you, Stephen. Be lost without my glasses. So I want to talk this morning about one part of the rules-based order, and that is the international trading system. As you know, it's been created post-Second World War, but in its current incarnation through the WTO, 
it dates back to about the mid-1990s. <clears throat> and certainly the first 20 years of the WTO's existence was relatively dull. Um, but one cannot say that for the last five years. We've seen supply chains being deliberately disrupted. We've seen trade barriers, particularly between the United States and China, and China and the United States rise by a factor of seven. Uh, and the rules-based trading order more generally is under greater threat than at any time since the 1930s. So what I want to do today is to share some of the views on how we reached this point, how it will affect the Australian and the broader international economy, and what policy options do we have as a mid-sized open economy to shape the rules-based trading order. Now, like most good ideas, the rules-based trading order is very simple in concept, and yet it's profound in its reach. It's based on just three principles, um, built from a shared commitment to free and open markets, and those principles are non-discrimination, transparency, and recipro reciprocity. And these principles are then translated into agreed norms of practice that are codified and pervade trade agreements and country-level policies. What they do is they provide predictability and they give a voice to all nations, big or small, rich or poor. And the, the rules-based trading system was a bold plan and it worked. It secured progressively lower trade barriers and kept them low. This has been a driver of economic growth, lifting living standards, and contributing to poverty reduction. The World Bank estimates, for example, that over the past quarter century, more than a billion people elevated themselves out of extreme poverty, and in many cases, by seizing those opportunities that international trade has created. But despite the world trading system's strengths and accomplishments, Support for this liberal global order is wavering. If you take President Trump's inaugural address in 2017, he declared, we must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries, making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. And his words were followed through with decisions that left few doubting his bravado. In the days that followed his inauguration, the United States withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Not long after that, it also uh, withdrew from negotiations for the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership Agreement. And then over the following 24 months, tariff walls on a wide variety of goods between the US and China were progressively raised. And by the end of 2019, the average US-China bilateral tariff rate had reached 21%. Two years earlier, it was about 3%. And equally, the China-US tariff rate by the end of 2019 had jumped from 8% two years earlier to just under 22%. And since then, they've remained broadly, broadly unchanged. They've come down maybe a percentage point or two. So in sum, over the past four years, we have witnessed the fastest escalation in protectionist measures ever seen in the era of the rules-based trading system. And I think it's a, it's a major concern when countries not only begin to question the value of the rules-based trading order, but take deliberate steps to weaken it. And some indeed feared that this period would ultimately mark the moment 
the United States abandoned the rules-based trading system. Nevertheless, I think it would be a mistake to read too much into the US-China trade conflict. Tensions, in fact, had been brewing below the surface for many years. And in many ways, these tensions were a symptom of a broader malaise extending to the core of the rules-based trading order, the WTO. There were also geostrategic forces at play, but I'll focus on those at the WTO. Um, and there are significant challenges uh, that need to be addressed, and they relate to each of the three areas of WTO responsibility or ways in which the WTO operates. The first relates to the monitoring of trade policies, the second relates to negotiations, and the third to dispute settlement. I'll just take you through each of those in turn briefly. Notifications, or what the WTO does in terms of monitoring member states' trade policies, sounds quite soft, but when it works well, it restrains countries from applying trade-restricting measures and diffuses potential disputes through dialogue. However, for it to work well, it requires timely notification and open discussion of the issues in good faith. And this is essentially where the problem lies. In late 2020, for example, a third of the 164 WTO members had not yet lodged their 2015 subsidy notifications. That's one of the requirements that they have as, as member states to notify on particular aspects of trade policies. So a shortfall there. Moreover, the information that was provided or is provided is often incomplete. And a prominent example here is particularly with respect to state subsidies um, to state-owned enterprises. On trade negotiations, well, we all know they've, they've stumbled. Uh, no broad multilateral agreement has been concluded since 1994, over a quarter of a century ago. And it means that the trade rules have not kept pace with new forms of trade, like the rise of global supply chains and digital trade, as Stephen had mentioned in his introductory remarks. Nor have they kept pace with new issues like forced technology transfer or the, interna the internationalisation of state-owned enterprises. The, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, partly filled the void of, in the rules, but the global rules still need to catch up. And one of the contemporary difficulties with advancing multilateral negotiations is developing countries benefit from what is called a spe the special and differential treatment under the WTO. And this, this allows weaker requirements for market access and longer timetables for implementing agreements without reciprocating. And the issue here is that countries self-identify as developing and there are no established mechanisms for graduation to developed country status. Only one country, to my knowledge, possibly two, has ever declared their graduation uh, to a developed status country. And this has been a slow burner issue for the WTO and is arguably one of the hardest ones to crack. Uh, it's come to the fore as developing countries' share of world trade led by China has risen sharply since the finalisation of the Uruguay round. So negotiations, second challenge facing the WTO, the multilateral level, there hasn't been a new agreement in the past 25 years. 
Um, the third challenge relates to dispute settlement or dispute resolution. Uh, and this is a bit of a surprising one. Uh, as most members would say, it has been one of the biggest success stories of the WTO. The arrangements do generally play an effective role in diffusing tensions and avoiding retaliation that might degenerate into broader political conflicts. The WTO's appellate body has been the focus of criticism and the United States has raised procedural concerns, objections to the way the system operates and also with the body's interpretation of WTO agreements. And perhaps it's the third of those, which is the one that's particularly um, um, most evident um, in, pre in, re in recent years. But it's against this background that appointments to the WTO's dispute settlement appellate body have been blocked. And that goes back quite a few years. And since December 2019, it has no longer been functioning as the WTO's appellate body. Um, so if you pull it all together, uh, the, poor, the combination of poor conformity with WTO monitoring processes, a lack of consensus on the rules needed to handle new issues, and the erosion of trust between countries is undermining the integrity of the rules-based trading order. The rules-based trading order, however, is not broken and remains the foundation of multilateral trade policy. And in fact, the WTO has secured some less widely known successes in recent years. So to give some examples, the agricultural export subsidies have been abolished. Um, there are custom processes um, that are being redesigned that facilitate trade by taking away some of the friction that occurs when goods and services cross borders. Uh, and there's also been a government procurement and expanded IT plurilateral agreement that have entered into force. Plurilateral being less than because of the full membership, but ultimately open to other members of the WTO. But not, notwithstanding these successes, uh, Australia cannot afford to take, granted, take for granted that continued progress will be made. And even though the US and China have reached some kind of truce, the absence of trade conflict will not, of course, by itself reform the rules-based trading order. The rules-based trading order, in my view, and the broader spirit of multilateralism more generally has reached a fork in the road. And leading off to the right, you could say that the trade fracas of the last four years could be the first act in what could become a prolonged era of nationalism and protectionism, or leading to the left is a road yet to be sealed that restores trust and confidence in the multilateral trading system and can update the agreed rules that deal with the challenges of the 21st century. Now the Productivity Commission sketched out in a 2018 report a picture of what the destination reached would look like when turning right. I won't elaborate, but it certainly doesn't look pretty. And it's anyone's bet on what the destination when turning left ultimately would look like. But I'm optimistic it will be the path that will be followed. Australia certainly has a strong incentive to do so. We and other middle-sized economies have the most to lose from a weakening of the rules-based trading order. 
But the order isn't an end in itself. Uh, it matters because it's a means to deliver higher living standards. And that's the basis of how reforms to the system's renewal should be judged. Now let me share some thoughts on how to seal that path leading to the left. This involves measures that Australia can take alone and measures that Australia could pursue in cooperation with others. So let me start with the measures that we can take alone. I would say the single most important policy setting for Australia is to keep our own borders open and to continue working towards freer markets, including through unilateral removal of barriers. There's ample scope for the Australian government to remove nuisance tariffs, to lower non-tariff barriers, and to simplify rules of origin as examples. Commission analysis has shown that a country gains most of all from reducing its own trade barriers, especially non-tariff barriers, regardless of what other countries do. The prevalence of global supply chains only strengthens the case for lowering barriers while upholding and respecting agreed rules governing trade. Australia has successfully pursued this strategy in the past and up to now it has largely not deviated from it. An exception is our impulsive recourse to anti-dumping duties. And despite, despite their poor justification, use has intensified in this past decade. But more generally, governments need to make the case for open markets. They cannot be taken for granted. They need to be explained. And some of the concerns associated with uh, market opening also need to be um, better dealt with. Uh, and that means better consultation and engagement with the community on prospective trade agreements and on the rationale for free trade. I think that broader policies that strengthen an economy's resilience to technological changes and create an environment that spreads the benefits of globalisation more inclusively would also help build public confidence and acceptance in open markets. At the end of the day, however, there's only so much that Australia can do on its own. Australia must also continue to work with other like-minded countries in efforts to help bridge the impasses facing the world trading system. And we have a lot to offer. For instance, our experience operating a competitive neutrality complaints mechanism could be examined as a model for dealing with state-owned enterprises, industrial subsidies, and competition issues in the international trading system. Another example lies with our mutual recognition arrangements that allow different regulatory regimes without impeding trade unnecessarily. But I think resolving the deadlock on special and differential treatment would be a real breakthrough. And here we could sponsor work in developing countries to promote awareness of the domestic gains from unilateral liberalisation and share our own experience in this field. We could also start a process to develop and build consensus on a framework for classifying economies and when they transition to a developed economy status. And there's also scope to initiate a dialogue on how to incorporate into WTO agreements the advances made in agreements that have been negotiated outside the WTO field such as digital trade and standards. And we could pursue at the WTO the long overdue course, cause of reviewing existing WTO agreements. 
review provisions in the TRIPS agreement, for example, have never been used. These are just some of the options to strengthen and to move the rules-based order forward, and there are many initiatives among uh, different coalitions of countries that are moving in, the, in this sort of general direction. But the, the stakes are certainly high, and small steps taken in the right direction can make a big difference. If we don't renew the rules-based trading order, it may be replaced, and we may not like what we see in its place. Thank you. I'd now like to welcome Dr. Brett Williams. By the time you get home today, there'll be a copy of this paper available on my website if you just Google williamstradelaw.com. Um, my conclusion is very similar uh, to Jonathan's, that the single most important aspect of the Australian-United States relationship is how well they can work together to make the multilateral trade system work. In the paper, I discuss five ways that the US and Australia can work together on the WTO system but right now, I'm going to discuss just one of them, the one that's most politically difficult and the one that will require the most concentration from you for about the next nine to ten minutes. So um, listen up. Um, I'm talking about the way in which members calculate the size of dumping margins. Uh, under WTO rules, one of the circumstances in which a member is allowed to charge an import duty larger than its bound rate is where it's imposing an anti-dumping duty within WTO rules. An anti-dumping duty is a permitted response not to the behaviour of another government but to the behaviour of a producer in another country. That is, they are charging lower prices for units exported than for units sold in the producer's home country. The maximum permitted size of an anti-dumping duty is the dumping margin. The dumping margin is the difference between the price of the product when exported to the importing country and the normal value, which is usually the price of sales of the product in the home country. In some limited situations, it's permissible to depart from using a normal value calculated by reference to the price of sales in the home country and instead to base normal value upon a constructed price. In those situations, the dumping margin and consequently the maximum anti-dumping duty can be the difference between the price of the export sales and the constructed price. However, it is compulsory to stick to the usual method and use the prices of domestic sales as normal value unless for some reason it's not possible to make a proper comparison between the exports price and the price of domestic sales. That could be because there are no domestic sales of the same product or there's not a, not a big enough volume of the domestic sales or because there's some special situation in the domestic market which makes it impossible to make a proper comparison between the prices of export sales and the prices of domestic sales. 
what is a proper comparison between the prices of export sales and the price of domestic sales? Well, some might contest this, but I think it's a, a proper comparison is one which reliably indicates whether the particular producer is selling at lower prices for units exported than for units sold in their home country. In situations in which the normal value is allowed to be worked out using the constructed value method, the anti-dumping authorities are required to use the information in the records of the actual producer to work out the cost of production. Unless the accounting methods are not up to standard or the records for some other reason do not reflect the cost that the producer actually incurred. So they are the rules. Now let me tell you what the USA does and what Australia does. The United States uses a practice called non-market economy methodology to calculate the normal value in the dumping margin when the imported product comes from a producer in a country which the US Department of Commerce decides is a non-market economy. In those cases, the US determines the normal value using the constructed cost instead of using the price of sales in the domestic market. And then in calculating the constructed cost, they disregard what the producer actually spent to produce the product and they use information from producers of a similar product in another country, a surrogate country. So for a non-market economy, the permissible maximum anti-dumping duty is the difference between the export price and a constructed price based wholly or partially on the cost of production in some country other than the exporting country. This always results in a bigger anti-dumping duty than would have been calculated on a comparison between the price in export sales and the price in domestic sales. In particular, this is applied to China. When China acceded to the WTO, the protocol of accession contained a provision indicating that the USA would continue or could continue to use non-market economy methodology for 15 years until November 2016. It is absolutely clear that China thought it was negotiating a date by which the US had to cease using non-market methodology. However, the drafting of the clause is very peculiar. Instead of being written in terms of which WTO rules would apply and which derogations from WTO rules would cease to apply, the provision is worded in terms of criteria set out in the US statute, which do not appear anywhere in the relevant WTO rules on anti-dumping. Nevertheless, the reports made by the US executive to the US legislature soon after the Chinese accession in 2001 indicated that the US was allowed to use non-market methodology until November 2016. As the date came closer, the steel industry in the US began to circulate arguments that the 15-year phase-out provision in the protocol did not actually prohibit the US from continuing to use non-market economy methodology after November 2016. When the US and also the EU continued to use non-market economy methodology after the November 2016 deadline, China initiated 
a WTO complaint against the US and another one against the EU. The EU's complaint went to a panel, first panel ever where a retired judge of the International Court of Justice was appointed as a panelist. When the panel circulated its report, China suspended its complaint. And after 12 or 15 months, it let the complaint lapse. We can only guess that the panel must have found against China's claim. So far, China has not requested the establishment of a panel in its complaint against the USA. What about Australia? When Australia opened negotiations for the China-Australia FTA, Australia agreed with China that it would not use non-market economy methodology anymore. However, in assessing anti-dumping duties on imports from China, Australia frequently focuses on whether the production of the relevant product in China is affected by any kind of government intervention in the market for the product or the market, the upstream market for inputs. These are typically the kind of governmental interventions which affect the cost of all units produced, regardless of whether they are sold in the domestic market or exported. Therefore, the presence of such governmental interventions does not change the fact that a comparison between the prices in domestic sales and the prices in export sales can reliably indicate whether the producer is selling in the export market at a price less than it sells in the domestic market, that is, whether it is dumping. However, the frequent practice of the Australian Anti-Dumping Commission is to find that the Chinese government's interventions in the market constitute a particular market situation, which makes it impossible to make a proper comparison between the prices in domestic sales and export sales. And upon that basis, the Commission reverts to using a constructed normal value. Then, when the Anti-Dumping Commission determines the constructed value, it discards the information about the real costs incurred in the records of the Chinese producer and instead goes to another country or another source of information to work out the cost of some inputs. Just like the US non-market economy methodology, the Australian particular market situation methodology always results in a bigger anti-dumping duty than would have been calculated on a comparison between the price in export sales and the price in domestic sales. China has argued against these methods whenever it can, uh, but China has now begun to respond in kind. First, China initiated an investigation on barley imported from Australia in response to an application from the Chinese barley industry that argued that interventions by the Australian government in the market created a situation that justified departing from the usual method of determining dumping margins using domestic prices. As it turned out, China found a different basis for finding a very large dumping duty in the barley investigation. Since then, the Chinese wine industry applied for a dumping investigation on imports of wine from Australia arguing that Australian government interventions justified departing from using the prices of sales in Australia to determine dumping margins. The Chinese authorities have accepted that argument as part of their reasoning 
when they imposed the provisional anti-dumping measures on imports of wine, which has hit very hard on the Australian wine exports. On the US front, China has now initiated, has now twice initiated investigations of dumping by US firms and in those investigations is considering whether in the light of various market interventions by the US government, whether the US should be designated as a non-market economy for the purposes of determining the anti-dumping duties which China will then apply to imports from the United States. The methods used by Australia and the USA make no sense. They do not help to determine if a Chinese exporter is selling at one price at home and at another price in the export sales. The methods can result in the imposition of anti-dumping duties on Chinese exporters who are selling at exactly the same prices in the home and the export markets. This issue is a festering sore in the relationship between the US and China and in the relations between Australia and China. My personal opinion is that I do not believe that China can be enticed into genuinely participating in a round of trade liberalisation in the WTO unless this issue is resolved. If Australia and the US want to achieve further trade liberalisation in the WTO, I believe they must put on the table the way that they calculate dumping margins on allegedly dumped imports from China. And if they were to receive sufficient reciprocal trade liberalisation on market access for goods and for services, then the USA and Australia have to be prepared to give up the irrational and unconscionable ways in which they currently inflate the size of dumping duties on imports from China. When you look at the paper, you'll find that I also discuss four other issues. One is the essential need to do something about the special and differential treatment being used as an excuse for non-reciprocity uh, in negotiations. Uh, the second one is that the US and, and Australia could work together to restore a cautious attitude to the scope of the essential security interest exception in GATT. And finally, Australia and the US could work together to reinforce the rule that members cannot impose retaliation unless and until they've obtained authorization from the WTO uh, dispute settlement body. Thanks very much for uh, working so hard to uh, follow that difficult uh, presentation. Thank you very much for that, Brett. Uh, we're right on time, so I really want to take the opportunity to invite any questions for our panelists. Uh, Jared Monshine will be circulating the microphone. Yes, hi. I think this is for Jonathan. Um, I'm interested in the, well, basically, how can global trading uh, companies in the US and Australia address their carbon footprint 
and the disruption to supply chains, such as we've seen with COVID-19, while still pursuing a multilateral trading system um, and realizing the net zero by 2030. Uh, yes, I'll ask you to be brief. Yeah. Um, if you take the second part of your question, um, the disruptions to supply chains in relation to products that are needed in response to the pandemic, there are, under the WTO rules, provisions that can allow countries, particularly when there's a health emergency or national security considerations, to put restrictions on their exports. Um, but they're, they're framed um, in terms of, um, A, the transparency in doing so, but B, in terms of the conditions under which they do so. Um, and it would be fair to say that some of those um, arrangements have, they haven't been tested, but it would be fair to say that some of those arrangements have been taken in a um, sort of fairly ad hoc manner. Now, under the rules-based trading order, one could take um, uh, an exception um, to what's happened. But the system is really slow, um, and it wouldn't really, in an environment like a pandemic, make, make much difference. It would be more of an academic difference. Um, so um, there is no sort of immediate response to something which is just so fundamentally um, um, important in the here and the now. Um, but there can be other forms of uh, diplomatic engagement uh, and, and development of relations that can support the response. And ironically, to give a counter example to that, um, one of the areas where anti-dumping anti duties were imposed um, by the United States on China related to certain PPE equipment. So in a, in a sense, they were um, sort of cutting off the nose despite their face because it didn't prevent um, the sales from coming through, but it certainly increased the cost of them coming through. So trade, trade uh, arrangements can be a, a source of better enabling um, supply chains to meet situations where there's a, a phenomenal jump in demand. Um, and again, we saw that with uh, protective personal equipment. There was a, just an absolute uh, phenomenal increase in, in production um, from a multiple range of sources. Um, so I, I just hesitate. I just caution some um, further, further reflection on some of the high level, high publicity responses to, for example, restrictions on vaccine exports um, to some of the broader areas in which trade can be part of um, response to something like the pandemic. I'll briefly allow one more question and response over here. Hi, I'm Bryce Wakefield. I'm with the um, Australian Institute of International Affairs. My question is to uh, Brett. Um, uh, you speculate that China withdrew or suspended its complaint um, to the WTO um, when it found out that um, the, the panel was, was going to um, judge against it. Um, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if you have any speculation as to why um, the panel was going. What, what, what was the panel's reasoning? Why do you think it was going to reject uh, the Chinese complaint? Because that rejection would seem to go against your argument, and I'm, I'm kind of interested in it, to know if you have any idea about why that might be. Um, well, 
I don't know. The panel report has not been issued. Uh, if anybody has leaked a copy of it, I have not seen it. So I don't know what the reasoning of the panel was. However, uh, the provision in Article 15 of the protocol is complicated. It, 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 it's not worded in terms of um, the rules of the WTO, which can be deviated from for a specific time. It's worded in terms of whether Chinese can satisfy this criteria under the US law. Uh, and it talks about um, two situations, whether or not China can establish that the particular sector is operating as a, as a on a market basis and if China can't establish it. And then it has this over, and then it, in the situation where China can't establish it, it says it doesn't have to use uh, Chinese prices or costs. And then in the last paragraph of the provision, it says, however, paragraph 1B, the one that says that the US can keep using prices and costs other than Chinese prices and costs, uh, is to expire in November 2016. The weird thing is why that clause at the end doesn't say the whole article expires in November 2016, and why it's worded in a way that could be interpre interpreted just to mean that part of the provision continues on in effect after November 2016, and part of it doesn't. My gut feeling is the US lawyers and negotiators pulled a bit of a fast one on the Chinese uh, inexperienced WTO negotiators. Uh, I've had a certain amount of experience with Chinese lawyers who don't understand the relationship between international law and domestic law and probably didn't realize that the whole thing should have been drafted completely differently. Um, the rest of the membership didn't get a chance to have any input into it because it was not originally drafted as part of the protocol of a session. It was originally drafted two years earlier um, in 1999 uh, as part of a bilateral agreement between the US and China, where they agreed that China had, the US agreed China had promised enough market access for the US to vote in favour of the accession. Uh, and once the United States has put a clause in draft in a document, it's pretty hard for the other members of the WTO to start playing around with that um, clause when it was lifted into the protocol in the session. Um, it, we are slightly over time, Brett. So, okay. Uh, what I might do is encourage you to interrogate our speakers uh, during the break. Uh, it just remains for me to thank our invited panellists and to thank you for participating in this morning's session. Thank you.